podcast one production. So this is all more than 25 years ago, May 1993. And a few years before that, I'd been bitten hard by the virtual reality bug. It had become an obsession. I quit my job. I moved across the United States to San Francisco, where it all seemed to be happening. And I started a company to create the first consumer VR system. Now, back in the early 90s, that would have seemed a very tall order because VR systems back then, they cost a million dollars or more. And we wanted our system to cost one thousandth of that. We wanted people everywhere to have one. We wanted people to explore the world of virtual reality. And it turns out we weren't the only folks with that idea. We'd been working on this for more than a year and we were really starting to run out of money. And then video game giant Sega came knocking. We had solved a big problem that they had because we'd invented a sensor that detected where your head was looking. Now, all VR systems need that because all VR systems track your head. And the solutions that were out there, they cost $1,000. Ours cost 50 cents. Sega wanted to make consumer VR reality, so they licensed our invention. We thought we'd had it made. We'd be rich. Didn't work out that way. Now, Sega launched the Virtual VR, that's what they called it, with a lot of fanfare at the Consumer Electronics Show in 1993. It won Best in Show from many magazines, and there were hundreds of thousands of pre-orders. But as the first units came off the manufacturing line, and they went out for testing, well, we were told that they made kids sick. Sega's lawyers told them they were opening themselves up for the biggest product liability lawsuit in history. So the whole project... It was just quietly killed. It just disappeared. And my company went down the drain with Virtua VR. And that marked the death of consumer VR for 20 years. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. Now, on this third series, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future, a future that's been shaped in part by wild dreams pursued obsessively. On this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, the second in our three-part series on the past, present, and future of technology, we'll talk to author Blake Harris about how the dream of consumer virtual reality drove a talented teenager to bring a dead field back to life, and how the culmination of his dream also, for him, marked its end. Join us as we explore the history of the future on The Next Billion Seconds. 20 years after I founded the first consumer virtual reality company, another bright-eyed inventor on the opposite side of the United States got even more obsessed with virtual reality than I'd been back in the day. Working on the other side of the interval, that's the span from 1992 to 2012 when computing got a thousand times faster basically for free, he was doing things I couldn't dream of doing at all. And success is as much a matter of timing as it is anything. And that's summed up in this very famous phrase by Charles Fort. It's steam engines when it comes steam engine time. In other words, 
You can't rush an innovation, but neither can you stop it. All you can do is climb aboard before the train leaves the station. Although, really, it's probably better to think about is like getting on a surfboard because there's so many ways once you've found that wave that you can just get dumped off. Staying up there, it takes skill, it takes a fair bit of luck, and the rewards for a successful ride can be enormous. But that ride, it never goes according to plan. And that's the story throughout this entire history. The computer becomes personal through a series of lucky accidents, and VR became a thing again because of another lucky accident, Palmer Lucky, the founder and visionary behind Oculus. Blake Harris tells the very interesting and unexpected tale of Palmer Lucky, Oculus, and the rebirth of consumer VR in his book, The History of the Future. Blake, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Mark. And, and I really appreciate the introduction and you making the explicit point about luck and timing. Because, um, you know, we'll get into all of this, but one of the things that really impressed me early on with uh, with talking with Palmer Lucky was I asked him uh, what would have happened to Oculus if he had been 20 years earlier. I, you know, he's a 19-year-old kid in 2012 when he started, so that would have been impossible. But basically, you know, if you had been around in the 90s trying to do consumer VR, and he said, oh, I would have completely failed. You know, it wasn't <laughs> a matter of, you know, that he was the guy who cracked the code because he's so brilliant, and he is brilliant, but he... You know, he was humble enough to acknowledge how fortuitous he was. And, and that is the story of technological revolution. So I'm so glad that right off the bat, you know, you make that clear. So t tell us a little bit about Palmer Lucky, who is still, I think, probably only just barely 25. What is his story that put him in this right place at this right time to be the focal point for the modern era of VR? Well, the one attribute that is always common in these, um, you know, lucky accidents, whether it's with filmmaking that I often write about or with technology, it, it's always passion. And so Palmer's passionate guy. But, you know, my story begins and his story begins uh, with Oculus in, in early 2012. Um, the book, the first chapter specifically begins in April 2012, when at the time Palmer was a 19 year old kid living in a camper trailer, a 19 foot camper trailer uh, in his parents driveway in Long Beach, California. And, uh, you know, his prospects didn't look super bright at the time. He was he was and still is a brilliant guy, but he had been homeschooled and gone to take some community college courses and become obsessed with virtual reality. And between 2009 and 2012, he spent so much of his time online on an Internet forum called uh, Meant to be Seen 3D, MTBS 3D, as well as the Internet forum that he founded, Mod Retro, which, uh, you know, made fun things out of old retro game consoles. And uh, it was sort of this nice alchemy that led to a 19-year-old kid who wasn't even around uh, back during that first wave of consumer VR that, you know, you were pioneering, uh, you know, that, that made him not be aware of the baggage and also just so fascinated by the consoles and technologies of yesteryear. And, uh, you know, I make... I make the point early on in the book that at the time in 2012, so long ago now, I guess, you know, it really wasn't that long ago, but it felt so long ago because back then people really did think of virtual reality as a technological punchline similar to flying cars or jetpacks, like this sci-fi trope that just never happened and it was silly that we ever thought it would. But Palmer was someone who, who believed in it and he largely believed in it for gaming. He was a hardcore gamer and wanted to literally, or not literally, but figuratively step through the screen and uh, VR was the the most immersive way for him to do that. And so, you know, he founded Oculus 
Oculus in June of 2012. Um, he ended up launching a Kickstarter in August of 2012 that really caught a lot of attention. Uh, along the way, he connected with John Carmack, the legendary game maker, best known for his work at id Software with games like Doom and Wolfenstein and Quake. And then uh, less than two years later, Oculus sold to Facebook for almost $3 billion. Um, so it was, a, it was one heck of a ride that I got to write about. Yeah. There, there's, there's a moment in here where Palmer is thinking that he's got this, this kit because he's coming out of a community of enthusiasts of people who are happy to build their own hardware, or program their own games or mod their own. And, and, and it's this very sort of hobbyist community because that's really all that was left of VR. I mean, you make the very good point that VR had become a punchline. And I can tell you from my personal experience, <laughs> that is absolutely true. VR had become a, a failed technology and it's not often you don't, there's not a lot of precedent for a failed technology to come back from the dead. Now, we do start to see this idea of the 20 night over a 20 year overnight success and artificial intelligence is one of those virtual reality might be the the, the, the jury's still out on that. We'll talk about that a little further on. But we have this idea of some technologies just taking a really long time to mature. But you have Palmer working on this in 2012. And then he comes across Brendan Irby. And something really unexpected happens because Brendan was a very successful games entrepreneur. And something about Palmer and what Palmer was doing lit a fire under him. Could you could you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought Brendan up as as early as you did because um, you know Palmer ended up uh, you know leaving Facebook and Oculus in March of 2017, and I spent a lot of time uh, reflecting with him in those weeks leading up to his exit. And one of the things I asked him was you know sort of reflecting on Brendan, and he said that Brendan you know Palmer said that. I, I, meaning him, Palmer, uh, I'm the reason that Oculus happened, the reason it started, but um, Brendan is the reason that it was successful, you know, even more so than me. And uh, the first step really in what led to him feeling that way, I would say, is what you're talking about. You know, Palmer and Brendan had uh, a dinner in June 20, uh, uh, June 2012. Uh, and at the time, Palmer was considering an offer to go join Sony and, and, and lead a virtual reality lab for them in Santa Monica. And Brendan's initial objective was to essentially talk him out of doing that and to uh, push Palmer to start his own company. And then Brendan's second objective was to um, finance that company and ending up, he ended up being the CEO of that company and, and really uh, push Palmer to expand the scope of his vision. Uh, Palmer, as you make the point, he really was focused on a DIY kit uh, for enthusiasts like him. And uh, Brendan believed that it could be so much bigger, so much sooner. Um, and, and I'll caveat that by saying that it wasn't that Palmer, uh, you know, had a narrow vision for the future of VR. He just believed that in order for us to get to the future that I think both you and I look forward to, certainly the thing that has lured you into working on this for so many years and lured me into writing about it, you know, he believed that that gaming and, and the enthusiast community was the stepping stone. And uh, and I and I. Actually, um, I'm looking forward to the next edition to re-including re a, a conversation that I, I didn't realize how significant it was at the time. But in retrospect, I want to include it from that first dinner because uh, Brendan 
makes a comparison between virtual reality and and the smartphone revolution, and he sees that VR, you know, and, and eventually AR, that VR could be as ubiquitous as smartphones, and that there's a similar, you know, that this could be the next wave of computing. And Palmer essentially agrees that this is the next wave of computing, but he sees it, the revolution if it were to happen as much more similar to the personal computer revolution, um, which, you know, we, we sort of forget was so much based on enthusiasts and hobbyists and a homebrew mentality. And I, I think about that now a lot because in the, you know, you'd say the PC revolution began in the late seventies and Apple is sort of the company that personifies that success and that dream. Um, and, and, and well-deservedly so, but, at the same time, my family didn't own a personal computer until 1995. So it took 15 years from like, you know, this revolution starting to actually reaching a mainstream audience. And I don't think that that's going to be the case here. But I think that um, the main point is that uh, it was perhaps naive, though maybe a necessary evil to believe that VR could become as ubiquitous as quickly as smartphones. And and the book also opens with Mark Zuckerberg addressing the Oculus team right after the acquisition. And he makes that exact comparison to smartphones. Um, and I think that he's finding that that's has not been the case and that that was maybe a little naive. We actually do have this idea that there's the two competing visions. And in the last episode, we had Dr. Lane Mooney, who has documented the rise of the personal computer becoming personal, talking about that landscape of the of the 1970s, where there was effectively this conversation between the hackers who were building all this crazy hardware and then the visionaries, people like Jobs, but Jack Tremail, other people, and the suits, the people who were trying to make money off of software companies, and that there was a conversation there that ended up creating what we think of as the personal computer today. And what was really interesting reading your book is you could see how that conversation was happening again. So you have Palmer, who is both, I guess, the hacker and the visionary. You have Brendan, who's something between a visionary and a suit. And then you oh, have. I'm so, I'm so, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm, you're the first person to make that point. And, and it's such a good one that, you know, in sort of the dynamic you're describing, Palmer would be the, you know, creator visionary, and Mark Zuckerberg, the acquirer, would be sort of the suit that comes in. But Brendan really is in this interesting middle role um, where he even invested and had that conversation with Palmer before actually trying it. So there is a very much a, a, a serial entrepreneur VC mentality to him. But at the same time, he did have that success that you mentioned earlier in the software space and middleware. And so he can speak the language of programmers, engineers, and, and creators. But I, I'm just so glad that you're the first person to really make the point that he was straddling those two worlds. Well, I, I, and I think it's important to, to note that it takes, I mean, when these things work, as the PC did, as VR has or is working now, that it takes that constellation. And if you don't have all of those pieces in place, in some ways, the engine doesn't have all of the right pieces in it to get started. And so if we're looking at both a history of a technology or a future of a technology, and we take a look at both of those on this series, we sort of have to understand how all of these pieces are working. All right. So now we get to, you know, they, they build some prototypes, they get Carmack interested in it. And John Carmack being a gaming god, when he says something is good and when he blesses it, it starts to take off. And they go out and they start to now put the pieces together to do this Kickstarter. They have a very successful Kickstarter. It raises a lot of money, but now they have to build a company. And this is where they start building essentially almost a dream team. Could you tell us about sort of how that worked? Was that Palmer's doing what that Brendan's doing, or did it just sort of happen because the idea was so good? Oh, that's a great question. So, 
Um, I described early on Brendan traveling the country and then the globe and sort of this uh, reminded me of George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven, you know, traveling around, finding all these different specialists, robotics specialists, Steve Laval from the University of Illinois and um, a tracking specialist in Narav Patel from Apple. Um, And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, the first time that I met with Brendan, when I was given access to speak with the folks at Oculus, uh, which lasted for a couple of years, he asked me early on, you know, how did I envision this book? And it was early. Um, but but I told him, I, I said, I sort of see it as the marriage between you and Palmer. And and by you and Brendan, I also met the people that he had worked with in the past, some of the other co-founders of Oculus, Mike Antonov and Nate Mitchell. Um, and, and in terms of that marriage, I think that turned out to be a pretty good analogy, especially because of how it dissolves at the end. But, but early on, um, it really was kind of the perfect balance. You know, Palmer knew people like Narav Patel, uh, Brant Lewis, um, and, and so many others from his time on MTBS 3D and from him actually knowing VR and being an expert and, and knowing the community. Um, and Brendan uh, had great connections with uh, with the game engine companies like Unity and like Epic. And Brendan had, an, had and still has an incredible ability to recruit and to sell the vision. Um, and so, it, you know, if, if you sort of imagine a chart of, of Brendan's vision and uh, Palmer's vision, I feel like it most coincided very early on in this, you know, beautiful, perfect convergence uh, of the early days of Oculus and their ability to recruit um, this sort of dream team that you described. But at the same time, um, I, I describe it as, a, you know, I describe these characters as the anomalies because they, they are very talented and ambitious and there's a romanticism to them, but they are not necessarily uh, top, top of the tier talent, you know, top tier talents because those people thought VR was crazy. They wouldn't want to leave a cushy job, a high paying job for the silly VR thing. So, you know, they had to attract people that were willing to take that risk or that were so um, inspired by this, this fantasy. Um, and, and, they, and Brendan and Palmer put together an incredible team. All right. There's one huge, notable exception to that. There was one person that they got who was an absolute star. Could you tell us, they managed to bring John Carmack into Oculus. How did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, we talked very early on in this conversation about luck and timing. And, you know, if someone said was trying to replicate Palmer's success formula um, and how his life changed, you know, it's impossible. You can't say, all right, so you got to spend three years doing prototypes and then some, and be discovered by this guy out of the blue, <laughs> you know, this guy, John Carmack. And like you said, when John Carmack says something is good and gives it this blessing, that means it's good. And that, that, you know, when John demoed the early Oculus Rift prototype in E3, that is really what put Oculus on the map and gave them a place to stand for their Kickstarter. Um, and you're right. He is a plus plus talent, brilliant guy. Um, I also love that the reason he was even interested in VR was, was from a marketing standpoint, you know, he, he's able to think outside the box and also think inside the box of how can I get to do my outside the box ideas. And part of the reason that they were able to get him is because um, John at the time was at id software, which was owned by ZeniMax and ZeniMax, like a lot of the, you know, like that general perception we're talking about, they just didn't believe in VR. They thought this was a waste of John's time, a waste of company resources. And they told John to stop working on VR, um, you know, even with sort of his spare time. And, um, John, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it, the point can't be made that you can't really tell John Carmack what to do. Yeah. yeah. I remember, um, you know, Brendan, um, Brendan Arib, the CEO, he, he was telling me about this, this meeting that he had in November of 2012 with ZeniMax that didn't go very well. And with a guy named Vlatko Antonov and Vlatko was a colorful character and sort of pounds the table and yells at 
Brendan and Oculus for being stupid kids and they should accept any terms that Zenimax wants. And, you know, basically it was a terrible meeting, except for one thing that uh, Vladko, Brendan relayed, uh, threatened that, you know, if you don't agree to our terms, we're going to tell John to stop working on VR. And And that's what ended up happening. But Brendan, being a very smart guy, realized... You don't tell John to not work on something. That's going to backfire. And, and and Oculus was the beneficiary of that backfire. And also, you know, it really goes to show that, you know, it, it is odd for John to go to a small startup at that time that whose success was certainly not predicted to be what it was. But also, if he was interested in working VR, there wasn't really many other places he could go. He potentially could have gone to Valve, but they didn't really believe in VR. He maybe could have gone to Sony, but they had killed the recent VR effort. So, um Obviously, um, you know, John went to Oculus because he believed in those people and their vision, but it also, there weren't that many choices for this technology that he wanted to explore. But it does say something about the degree of passion that all of these people possessed, that they were basically willing to drop what they were doing. Most of these people had very successful careers. Palmer's a bit of the exception because he's living in this trailer at the time, but almost everyone else was incredibly successful. And over and over again, you tell the story of these people effectively dropping what they're doing and getting on the bandwagon and Oculus. Okay, when we come back, We'll talk about the height, the purchase, and then what the purchase by Facebook produced. You're listening to The Next Billion Seconds. We'll be right back. And we're back on The Next Billion Seconds talking to Blake Harris, author of The History of the Future. And this really is an interesting history because it's both a history of something that's happened, well, say five, six years ago, back in 2012, but it's something that's still going on today. So... Like we have this moment and it was, I think, a shocking moment in a lot of ways when Mark Zuckerberg, based on, I don't know, what was it, basically two visits and one brief view of the technology decides that he's going to drop $3 billion on this startup. How did that happen? Um, Well, like all stories that happened years before what actually happened, um, you know, to understand the context around why Mark was so interested in this and why he was willing to do so after seemingly such little interaction and, you know, research into virtual reality, I I think you have to understand how much he felt a fear of missing out based on the success of mobile and Facebook being late to the game with that, which part of that was just through the timing of when Facebook was founded. But but part of it, too, was Facebook, you know, really remaining much more of a desktop platform um, instead of going to mobile much earlier. Um, But Mark, um, you know, Mark, Mark saw in, in Oculus um, a, a big pivot. You know, he saw the social aspect of it. Um, and, and it's not to say that Brendan and Palmer and the rest of the crew didn't see that as well, but they really were so gaming oriented. You know, the tagline for their Kickstarter campaign was step into the game. Their, the whole premise of the company and the appeal, the ethos was like buy gamers for gamers. Um, and Mark uh, wanted to take it further and, you know, to bring VR to a billion people. And that really is what attracted the guys at Oculus so much. Uh, obviously, the money, you know, they all did pretty well, so you can't um, ignore that fact. But, you know, one of the things that is nice about this book compared to my first book, uh, you know, the first book takes place in 1990 and 1995, and this one takes place in the internet age with e- records and emails and all those web forum posts. And 
early on, um, you know, someone in the VR community asked Palmer, you know, what would be his price that he would sell Oculus for? Like basically what's your sellout price? Cause I, um, you know, the creator of Minecraft notch had made a similar statement around that time. And Palmer, um, said that there was no amount of money that the only reason he would ever sell out or sell Oculus is if it was best for VR. And that really was his guiding philosophy. You know, you can argue whether or not he made decisions that, you would agree we're doing what's best for VR, but that was what appealed to him and what appealed to the other founders so much about Facebook, that they believed that uh, Facebook uh, not only was spending all this money to acquire Oculus, uh, but would also be giving them money to recruit top talent, investing billions of dollars over the next few years, investing billions of dollars on content, and that um, you know, for VR to reach its potential, Facebook was the right partner. Uh, I don't I think the great question is whether they were right about that, but that was their thinking. <laughs> okay. And so we have this purchase for, I think, around $3 billion that happens in 2014. And, and the thing is, from my point of view, as someone who's been, had been involved already 25 years in VR at that point, I can tell you that that was both the single biggest financial validation of VR in history at that point. But it was also the moment that because uh, of that, Sony becomes, wait a second, VR is going to come back. So the PlayStation VR starts to become a thing. Whether or not Valve finally makes their decision to commit to their own VR products. But what you see is that when that much money is put onto the table, things that maybe people thought were vague ideas or were the punchlines to jokes. Well, you, there's, there's very little punchline to $3 billion, right? And, and so all of a sudden, things that seemed hard, or seemed difficult, or seemed impossible now seem real and doable and profitable. And so in, in, in the biggest sense, it's, yeah, Palmer was absolutely right in that it was the best thing for VR, not because of the payday, but because of how much it absolutely changed everyone's perception of what VR was. Right. So we have that happening. But now you have Carmack coming to work at Oculus. So you have this dream team here. There's $3 billion on the table. And it's not just that people see that VR is real, but now people start to get very tetchy about whether they've been robbed along the way. And the first one of these folks to come out of the room, you've already mentioned Zenimax, and Zenimax fairly quickly filed a lawsuit. Could you talk about that? Uh, yes. So there was already some bad blood between Oculus and Zenimax uh, for two reasons. One was that they were unable to come to terms to release the game that Carmack had been demoing at back at E3, the Doom 3 BFG and VR. Um, so that created some friction. And then early in 2014, a couple months before the acquisition, uh, Facebook, uh, Oculus, uh, you know, recruited five employees from id that are sometimes referred to as the id five. Um, and again, it is owned by Zenimex. Um, and they felt that that was potentially a breach of John Carmack's non-compete contract, but, or whatever the legality, they weren't too psyched about that. Um, all of that said, it's important to note that never in the, uh, what is it? almost two years that ZeniMax and Oculus had a relationship. Did ZeniMax ever allege theft of trade secrets until the acquisition by Facebook? Um, and, and ultimately that story was in the backdrop of a lot of, you know, the time that I was researching the book and speaking with the, the team. Um, and that leads to a trial in January of 2017, which is uh, settled, you know, not settled uh, at all. It's a, it had a jury verdict um, in early February 2017. And, um, you know, I guess 
the, the jury found that there was no trade theft, none of that stuff that was a large part of how the story was reported, you know, what a big part of the charges were. But they found that Oculus was uh, liable for $500 billion for things like false designation, meaning that um, they believe that Oculus, um, you know, included uh, support from ZeniMax and VC pitches when they didn't have the support that Oculus was saying. I think that's very debatable. Um, and, 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 e- and even if true, uh, it's, it's a, crazy to me that, that they would find that that would be worth $500 billion in damages. And um, I think you know it was also crazy to the judge because they ended up Oculus ended up appealing that and having most of those things reduced. But um, either way, you know, your, your point is spot on that, you know, whenever there is a lot of money to be made, um, there's a lot of, you know, at the end of the day, you know, success has a lot of uh, parents, you know, creations have a lot of parents. Um, We talked about, you know, Palmer was the one who was on the cover of Wired and Time and Popular Mechanics. um, But there were so many other people that we've been talking about, Brendan and Steve and Narav, you know, it's an ensemble effort. And then beyond just the Oculus team, there was collaborations with Valve. There was collaboration with John Carmack. Um, The reason, uh, just so listeners know, to me, the, the, the case, um, seems to be summed up in two sentences that one, yes, John Carmack definitely contributed to the success of Oculus Two, John Carmack specifically had carved out into his contract that he was allowed to speak with the hardware makers and provide ideas and help them collaborate for the benefit of Zenimax. So it seemed like, yes, there was help, but yes, that's not a crime. Uh, That was sort of my assessment of it. And and there's this other sense that's going through the book, and and it's uh, you know it's one of the best qualities of Carmack, which is that Carmack tends to give his best work away so that other people can learn from it and build on it, and that he wanted very much that same thing to be happening with hardware because he wanted gamers to have the best hardware, and that's one reason why that's in his contract, so that he could actually work with these folks to make the hardware that his games were running on as good as possible. Absolutely, you know. When I first pitched this book back in 2015, um, you know, knowing only what I knew from the outside, I sort of pitched it to the publisher as console wars, but with virtual reality, meaning that there was like, you know, all these technological giants, Google and Sony and Valve and Oculus and HTC all battling it out. Um, But then, you know, as a journalist, you go where the story takes you and don't take the story where you want it to go. And I realized, no, this really wasn't a story of marketplace competition, at least not to anywhere the degree of console wars. This really was a story of revolution and a lot of collaboration and cooperation. And um, that a lot of that started with, with, beat the, te- the most talented individuals like John Carmack or like Michael Abrash or like Palmer Lucky having such a strong ethos and principled view of the importance of openness and sharing and collaboration, um, especially to turn VR from a punchline into a possibility. Right. And this is exactly, of course, to come back to the personal computer revolution with the homebrew computer club in the mid 1970s, particularly in the Bay Area and the Boston Computer Society, which I was a member of back a billion years ago as well, that these were these kinds of organizations that were radically dedicated to that kind of sharing and knowledge trading in order to improve the scene for everyone. All right. We now have this idea. Okay. So now Palmer becomes not quite a billion overnight, but you know, half a billion dollars, so quite a bit of money overnight. And this is both his payday and in some sense his undoing. And this is the tragic part of this story is that what happens to Palmer is Palmer now through a series of, I don't know if we could call them blunders, but a, a series of things that don't look good eventually finds himself forced out 
of his company. What happened? Yeah, well, first of all, what happened is very different than what was reported to have happened. But we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but I'll just say, that, you know, my book has a there's an opening quote from Mad Men, uh, and it's one of my favorite quotes from that show where Peggy Olson tells Don Draper that he never says thank you, and he says that's what the money is for. And to me, that sort of summed up the mentality in Silicon Valley. There's this transactional nature um, and that tries to take the emotions out of everything, which is generally impossible. But you know, people pretend like that's not. Um, and particularly and I, if you're talking about something that people are so passionate about, right. like inventing a new technology, you're right. Right. And so, you know, I, 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 that quote applies to this book in a lot of ways, but one is that uh, Palmer did sell the company, um, even if the money was backloaded and he could say he wasn't paid out all of it yet, but he did sell it and he lost the control. And so he was put in a position where he could somewhat easily be forced out. Um, but in terms of what happened and the reason why it's, it's sad is that, um, unfortunately, it had nothing to do with virtual reality. Um, it, it had a lot to do with politics. Um, in, in September of 2016, so this was a couple months before the U.S. presidential election, um, it was reported that the, the headline was that, Paul, that uh, Facebook billionaire, meaning Palmer, that Facebook billionaire was secretly funding Trump's meme machine and the insinuation explicitly and implicitly and that was you know churned out by dozens of outlets on the tech gaming and mainstream community was that Palmer was funding a, uh, a troll operation that was responsible for all the terrible misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, just every bad meme and bad internet thing that you'd seen online over the past election season. Um, the truth is that that wasn't true at all. But what was true was that Palmer was a Trump supporter, and um, that was a real problem. Uh, initially, it was such a problem that when Palmer uh, wrote up his draft for the you know public statement to explain what was true and what was not. Uh, he said that he you know that what was reported about the memes and the trolling and all that not true. But he was a Trump supporter. Uh, that Mark Zuckerberg found that so unacceptable that uh, he personally drafted a statement for Palmer to publish in which. Palmer said he didn't support Trump, but that he would be voting for Gary Johnson, uh, which is um, illegal. Um, also, I'd say very unethical for the CEO of one of the most powerful companies to dictate the political allegiances of one of their employees. Um, then essentially, Palmer was put into exile and fired six months later. And that really is a sad, tragic end. But to your point, you know, it's not like Palmer was blameless in all of this. He, uh, you know, he donated $10,000 to an organization that I think we could all agree after reading the book and looking at the facts wasn't that big of a deal, but the optics were bad. And I, I don't know, you know, he could have gone about it differently, better. Um, he seemed to have no remorse for how he went about doing it. Um, and I think that that is partially because he is a, he's a stubborn guy, but also partially because all he cares about is VR. So he would just say, why is this relevant to virtual reality? And the answer is it's not really, but the other answer, the practical answer is that people care about these things and Facebook's a public company. Facebook is a company that cares about the perception of it. So it, it does kind of matter. Well, and, and I guess the other way is that because he is a visionary, people look for visionaries, not just to be right in the area that they're visionary, but we have this almost human ability to want to ascribe rightness to every other area. And when we see that visionary dented in some way, impure in some way, then it, it hurts us more than it would if it were just a person who we didn't look up to in that way. And that's, that's part of the gift and the curse of being someone who has that kind of visionary magnetism. 
No, you're totally right. And, and and in a smaller degree, you know, some of the ways I saw that is I I, I interviewed, you know, over 100 people and I spoke to uh, people who had been doing VR since the 90s or people who had roles in Palmer's success early on. And they felt that they weren't being, you know, properly credited by him and talking to him. Whenever I asked about them, they, Palmer would always credit them. He always was pretty hum- – he was always very humble and, and pretty um, – careful to go outside, go out of his way to make sure to mention them. But, um, but maybe in interviews enough, he didn't do so. Or, you know, I I felt like there, there's, there is so much, you know, I I felt like he could have done a better job with that was my point. Just like I felt like he could have done a better job with, with all this though. The one thing I'll say is interesting is that in the course of my research, I ended up obtaining over 25,000 internal documents, mostly emails. And there's so many crazy twists and turns to the story um, but the mo- the craziest thing to me, the craziest archival find is just a it's a it's a Facebook post that was public and is now deleted from Palmer back in March of 2011, in which he says, uh, so I hear that Donald Trump is thinking about running for president. I think that'd be a pretty good idea. Now, personally, I don't think that's a good idea at all then or in 2016 or now. But but you know, this guy who's a visionary, he at least did seem to believe that Trump was a viable candidate five years before anyone else did. And I just thought, wow, it has nothing to do with VR. But that's crazy. Palmer really does have a good sense of the way things are going. Okay, so my final question. Here we are. Oculus has had a product on the market for getting close to five years. They're getting a whole line of products, and Valve has products, HTC has products. Sony sold over 4 million of their PSVRs. So we're definitely in an age of VR, but at the same time, there's a growing sense that the public and the market haven't adopted VR in the same way, at the same rate, with the same sense of delight and joy that you're you're clearly hearing from everyone, certainly in the early pages of the history of the future. Do we wonder, are people starting to question this, why this revolution is taking as long as it seems to be? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think every single person that I've interviewed um, – is questioning why things are not going as fast as they thought um, and whether this is a disappointment. And, and, and I guess, you know, disappointment at the end of the day is really just a matter of expectations. Um, And I guess I would say that this is a disappointment based on how, what Mark saw and what the team at Oculus saw on that day in March, 2014, but then at the same time, you sort of have to compare that to the technological punchline. And, you know, it's better to be a disappointment because you didn't sell 50 million headsets than to just be a technology that's a joke to work on. Um, and so the way that I kind of think about it is I'm as bullish about the technology as ever based on what I've seen and the potential applications. But but I mentioned earlier, like I do think it's going to be a revolution trajectory that's much closer to the personal computer revolution than to uh, the trajectory of, of mobile and, and smartphones. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's also interesting, you know, the whole time that I've been working on this book, which took three and a half years, there was always this talk of we need to find the killer app. And now it's five or years later. And no, we st- I don't think we found the killer app, you know, Beat Saber is a great game. And there's a, t- a ton of applications I love, but there's nothing that is really going to make my mom go out and buy a headset at this time. Um, and and, uh, and the part of the reason I think it's interesting is comparing this to the PC revolution. I think one could argue that the killer app of PC, well, it's probably the internet, but, but, you know, pornography was a big part of that. Um, and, and Facebook, um, you know, has made such an early effort to not have pornography on their platform and Apple as well, though, not 
you know, they're not I'm just talking about a general it's a tech company. Um, and, uh, you know, as, I think that's probably a good decision personally, but someone could see that as censorship or some, you know, uh, preventing the market from, you know, reaching its audience and reaching the demand. Um, so, you know, it's we're in a very interesting place, um, but I am still optimistic about where we're headed. Blake Harris, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you for having me on. It was great. Back a quarter century ago, after Sega pulled the plug on virtual VR, after my startup died, well, turns out that wasn't the end. I had a dream. I was going to make it happen, not just consumer VR, but networked VR, letting people connect and play and share and learn together. And it's a dream that's still not perfectly realized, even after Palmer Lucky. But within a few weeks after my first career in VR had come crashing down, a hot new technology caught my eye, something known as the World Wide Web. And because of my background in virtual reality, I was in the right place at the right time to work with my friend Tony Parisi to bring virtual reality to the web 25 years ago. So that story, it actually has a happy ending. And that happy ending, it's going to become the through line for our next episode. In the conclusion of this three-part look into the past, present, and future of technology, we'll examine the future of the web, a technology that's become so common we barely even notice it anymore, even though it underlies nearly everything we do with almost every device. That's on the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Now, the ending for Palmer Lucky, it was a bit more mixed. He sold his company for billions of dollars and then got thrown out. Now, he ended up with hundreds of millions of dollars. That was probably some consolation, but it's an unhappy end to a classic story of an entrepreneur who believed and changed the world. Then again, Steve Jobs got thrown out of Apple in 1985, and when he came back to Apple in 1997, he'd created the modern Pixar and founded another computer company, Next, and he brought all of that back to Apple. Palmer Lucky has moved on, too. Last year, he co-founded Anduril Industries. Anduril designs AI-powered weapons, guns that can think for themselves. So there's quite a chance we'll hear more from Palmer Lucky over the next billion seconds. If you'd like to learn more about Blake Harris, Palmer Lucky, or Oculus, click on the link to our website, nextbillionseconds.com, in the episode description. It has everything you want to take a deeper dive into his work or into the early history of virtual reality. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the histories we'll be writing about the future? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Now, in our next episode, we'll bring you the penultimate in our new series about the future of automobiles, the next billion cars. We're reaching a point where nearly anyone with a design can manufacture their own car with fabulous production. What does it mean when there are a billion automakers creating new designs? That's next time on the next billion cars. Big thanks to Blake J. Harris for coming on our show. Be sure to check out his book, The History of the Future. Blake tells the whole story of Palmer Lucky, Oculus, Facebook, and the race to create consumer VR. It is a great read, so check it out. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the Podcast One app or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. 
This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>